on his shirt. Anyways. Um, you know, I was thinking about this sermon, and if I was going to make a list, make a list of all of the top psalms, I think probably up near the top of that would be Psalm 23. It starts out, the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. It's a beautiful psalm. It's the kind of thing that people put on plaques. They hang that up in their house. Um, I think there's even spas that maybe use that kind of, we restore your soul sort of thing is their, their uh, motto, their slogan. Um, and we have all kinds of worship music and songs, Christian songs that use imagery from that psalm. It's this really reassuring passage. But I think right up there with Psalm 23 in terms of the most popular psalms would be one chapter back, Psalm 22. The thing is, is that I'm pretty sure that everyone has heard this psalm before, but you may not even be aware that it's a psalm. Um, the reason for that is that you're probably more familiar with how it gets quoted in the New Testament. Matthew and Mark both uh, re, uh, relay this passage at Psalm 22, verse 1, as Jesus' final words. It starts out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It's a much different tone. In Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd. I'm not going to be in want of anything. In Psalm 22, God is gone, and we don't even know why. He's just vanished. He's just not even on the scene anymore. Well, that's going to be our passage for today, Psalm 22. And spoiler alert, that's not where the psalm ends. It doesn't end with that sense of abandonment. Um, but with that said, let's uh, take a minute and pray. God, we're grateful for the whole witness of Scripture. We're grateful for all of the, the different ways that you show that you love us and all the ways that you show that you know us. We ask you to be with us here today, and we ask you to open our hearts and minds to the things that you'd say to us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, Jackie's going to read the whole psalm, so you can pray for her strength as she gets through it. It's a little bit of a long passage. Sorry, Jackie. Okay. But before you do, we've got to remember that as we're going into this, this is poetry. So we're not going to get something that's like linear, something well-reasoned, right? Luke starts out the Gospel of Luke, and he says, I have myself have carefully investigated everything to give you an orderly account. And that's not what we're going to see here. This is a poem. So it's a little bit more like a word version of walking through an art gallery. You're going to see a picture here, and you're going to see a picture here, and you're going to see a picture there. It's not going to be nice and linear. But as you see these pictures, pay attention, because you pay attention to what the, what the psalmist is feeling, what he's, the emotion that he's expressing. Pay attention to the emotions that, he's, that you, sort of it brings out in you. And sort of pay attention to even what this picture looks like, what this would mean in, in real life. And the other thing is that as we look at this, we're looking at Hebrew poetry, and it's a little bit different than English poetry. So in English poetry, we always rhyme the words. So I would say, it was the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even my pet dog. No, 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 you can't say that. Everybody cringes when I, say, when I don't say mouse. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. And it rhymes. The words sound the same. It feels good. It kind of resolves. Well, Hebrew poetry doesn't do that. What they do is they rhyme the ideas. So what you're going to see as we go through this is he's going to say one thing, and then he's going to say the same thing again the same way. And then he's going to say another thing, and then he's going to say something that totally contrasts with what he just said. So the words don't rhyme, but the ideas do. So kind of pay attention to that as we go along, because as you get those sort of parallel and, and, and contrast things, then that's kind of where a lot of the main ideas are, are hiding. So take it away, Jackie. Thank you. <clears throat> Psalm 22. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. 
To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They swag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you come my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for you have done it. You have heard our cry. You have come to our rescue. You have proclaimed your goodness and exalted your name. And we worship you. Help us continue to do so, Lord. Help us to continue to worship the Lord who has not forsaken the forlorn, who has not left us alone, who has not abandoned us, but who has presented himself as Emmanuel, God with us. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in looking at this, I loosely divided up this psalm into three sections. And the first one starts off in verse 1, goes off into about verse 10. And what we see in this section is that we kind of have the whole tone of things ping-ponging back and forth between hope and desperation. So, we start off with verse 1 to 2. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from saving me? 
It's complete and utter desperation. You're calling out into the night, hoping that God is somehow going to answer, but he doesn't seem to be there. Um, again, this is Jesus' quote on the cross, where Jesus' final words in Matthew and Mark. And when we get to verse 3, the tone changes. The author, the psalmist, he's no longer talking about himself, but instead he's focused in on God. And if we were to just take verses 3 to 5 out of this whole context and just read 3 to 5 all by themselves, it would almost sound like a psalm of praise or almost like a creed. He talks about God being the Holy One of Israel. He's been trustworthy to our ancestors. And in the last end of verse 5, he says, In you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. Now, it's all of this great stuff that he says about God, but when he sort of puts it in, he's tying it into that first verse. Yet, you are, the whole, you are enthroned as the Holy One. And so, rather than it being kind of this great hymn of praise, it's almost a little bit sad. There's a little bit of an ache in it. On the one hand, at the very start, he says, why have you abandoned me? You saved all these people a long time ago. What's going on? Well, when it gets to 6 to 8, he jumps back into the personal description. And he says, I am a worm and not a man. The idea is that he's nothing. I mean, when we talk, think about worms, the only times we really think about them is maybe when we're fishing or when it's raining. And when it's raining, we really only think about them if they're inconvenience to us. There's nobody who goes around and tries to save the earthworms as they've all crawled up out of the dirt. Right? I mean, the earthworm is lower. You know, it's not even crawling on the ground. It's down below the ground. I mean, it's about as low as you can get. So I am a worm and not a man. I'm nothing. I'm not even worth paying attention to. No wonder you're not saving me. You saved our ancestors. I'm just a worm. He goes on. He says, I'm scorned and despised, mocked and insulted. People look and say, hey, let's wait and see if God will save him. And it's interesting that we start out this whole passage with what Jesus cries, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when we get to this part of it, we're actually seeing what, what Matthew and Mark quote as the response to Jesus after he calls this out. Jesus calls out, why have you forsaken me? And the people's eventual response is, well, let's stand back for a minute. Let's see if God actually does something. Well, from there, the, the, the whole thing changes one more time. And we get into verse 9. And again, we're with the contrast. We're in verse 6, he says, I'm a worm. I'm nothing. In verse 9, we have God as the attendant at his birth. He says, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. So... In verse 6, you ignore him. In verse 9, it's, wait a minute, I was sort of the center of focus of God's attention, right? He's that whole midwife energy, imagery that, you know, the baby, he's the star of the whole birth process, right? And this is the focus, and God has been paying attention with me as the focus, even from my birth. It's this stark contrast to verse 6. It's kind of like he's ping-ponging back and forth. First, this is what my life is like, but this is what I know about God. It's everything that he knows and everything that he's experiencing at this moment is the exact opposite of what he knows to be true. He's just, the psalmist is just wrestling with his thoughts. He's going back and forth. This is what God is like. This is what my life is like. My life looks like this, but it shouldn't because God is like this. And he's just struggling with it through this whole first section of the passage. Now, when we get through this, he sort of steps, takes a step back and we get to take a look at the situation, sort of. It's not anything specific. We can't tie it with any historical events, but it's all metaphors. So first, he starts the passage off with, um, at verse 11, do not be far from me, for trouble is near. And then we get a whole bunch of trouble metaphors. He starts out, and we have these strong bulls in verse 12, roaring lions in verse 13, dogs in verse 16, and then a pack of villains in verse 16 again. 
Now, there's a couple of these I thought maybe we'll just take a few minutes to, to look at. And the first one is this idea of these bulls of Bashan. Now, when I was at Cal Poly, I used to ride my bike around the agriculture units, and every once in a while, I'd come, come up to a herd of cows. And you kind of ride your bike through those, and the cows sort of mosey away, and they move. And it's actually kind of funny. You know, and you see them sort of cows sitting by the side of the road, and you know, yeah, the nice cows, whatever. But that's not what we're picturing here. This is something totally different. This is more like when I was a kid, and we'd go to my uncle's farm, and there was one pasture where you were not allowed, and that's where the bull was. Okay, so you're not thinking about a herd of cows here. You're not thinking about being surrounded, you know, by by cows. You're thinking about the rodeo. Okay, so you've got a ton plus of of muscle pushing around a pair of horns and all of it pushed around with a bad attitude. And you're not talking about one of these bulls. You're talking about a pack of bulls. Now, normally bulls don't hunt in packs. They don't even hunt, right? But here you have all of these bulls surrounding you, ganging up on you, right? And if you've ever watched the rodeo, you see the rodeo clowns that get hidden in that barrel, and then the bull launches them through the air. This is a lot of muscle. This is a lot of scariness. This is a lot of danger. This is a dire situation. The other one is he says, I'm surrounded by dogs. Now, I mean, again, for some of you, I think being surrounded by dogs might be a picture of heaven, right? <laughs> I mean, when, when Raman comes to church, all the kids come running, right? But that's not what we're talking about here. I mean, this is a whole different kind of dog. The, this is more like when you go hiking up in the mountains around here and you happen to stumble onto a pack of coyotes who are wild. You're not really sure what their intentions are, right? Or maybe you're walking along in a neighborhood and you see that dog, and that dog doesn't quite look well. Is it rabid? Is it not? Is it healthy? It's a kind of mangy-looking stray. You know that dog hasn't eaten in a while, and he's got some pretty sharp teeth, right? And then you know, when you put that in line with the dog, the fact that dogs hunt in packs, so you've got a whole bunch of these unknown factors that are dangerous, sharp teeth coming at you, what are you going to do? It's a dangerous situation. But on top of that, you have this enemy. It's fierce, it's strong, it's dangerous. And the psalmist is weak. And so we also have this whole long list of metaphors about how weak the psalmist is. He says in 14, his bones are out of joint. He's poured out like water, and his heart is like wax. It's melted. He's not standing up to these guys. He's just a puddle. He goes on and says his bones are on display. And in fact, the people are throwing lots for his clothes. So he's so weak that people have taken his clothes, and he's not going to be able to do anything about it. They're just sitting there rolling dice see what's going to happen next. Now, again, this is a great picture of the crucifixion. We record that the, the guards were rolling dice for Jesus' clothes as he hung on the cross. So in the midst of all of this strength of enemies and weakness of the protagonist, you have a, Jesus as a direct parallel to this. So the enemy is strong. The psalmist is weak, and he ends this with, But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. <clears throat> and so you have this picture with this strong parallel with Jesus, where the psalmist is weak and the enemies are strong. Now, from here, there's this drastic change. The whole change of the, the whole tone of the psalm changes. So you have to kind of figure that we've just moved away from one picture and we've just moved on to the next picture in the painting, right? If it's, your own, if it's TV, we've just, everything's just faded out and we've moved on to another scene. And we don't actually get any particular reason why we're moving on to this other scene. We just know that we have. So it's not like we're going to get this 10-step process to go from the first half of the psalm to the second half of the psalm. We're just going to see what happens next. And from this second half, it's all praise from here on out. It starts off with verse 22. 
I will declare your name to my people, and in this assembly, I will praise you. So we start off with this, with this expression of praise, and the expression of praise, as you go through the whole rest of the psalm, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you start off, you have my people and the assembly in verse 22. When you get to verse 23, it's the whole nation of Israel and all the believers. As you get up to verse 27, it says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, all the families of all the nations. So you've gone from the, from the writer to the congregation, to the nation, to the whole world. And it doesn't stop there. You go on and you get up to verse 30. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. So you have all the people everywhere for all time. But that's not it. Because if you go back and you take a look at 29, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship, and all who go down will kneel before him. So you have all the people, all time, all kinds of people. Everyone, everywhere, always. The whole world will worship the Lord. Now, if we're, to put it in more of a narrative section, a narrative way of expressing it comes out of Hebrews 12. We look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what we here have here is really, it's kind of a picture of the church in some ways. You know, here we are sitting in Escondido, a couple of thousand years after the crucifixion. We are the future generation. We are living in the ends of the earth, and we have seen how the gospel has expanded from that crucifixion all the way out to hear the good news of what Jesus has done all around the world. And it's, a, it's something that Jesus offers for all people, the rich, the poor, everyone. And so this this whole thing where it's this, you know, in kind of a nutshell, we get the crucifixion into the church and into the history. Just the history of what becomes of the gospel after because of what Jesus has done. Now, to bring it sort of into another context, so we're in the season of Advent right now. And it's a season of church here when we're preparing our hearts to celebrate the arrival of Emmanuel, which is this ancient word for God with us. Jesus is our Emmanuel. He's what God looks like when he lives among us. And Psalm 22 is, is, is kind of this prophetic psalm. We have all of these pictures from the crucifixion, the quotes from Jesus, the reactions of the people, the reactions of the garden, the things that they did. Um, and there's something kind of mysterious that God with us is somehow God forsaken. And there's something, something more mysterious about this phrase, why have you abandoned me? And I think there has been a kind of a, there can be a tendency to read this as, you know, this is only about Jesus. Because there's something that's really stark about that. I mean, God doesn't really abandon us, right? You know, and so maybe what this is doing is describing the crucifixion. That somehow this is a really unique moment in time. Jesus is the one who is only truly abandoned. And so that's what this is really telling us. It's kind of this mechanism, this prophetic mechanism to tell us what happens at the crucifixion. And besides that, we can't necessarily take this on. After all, these are, are not the words of somebody who has faith. You know, there's this, this story in the New Testament. Jesus is out and walking on the water. He calls Peter, come out of the boat, walk with me. And so Peter comes out in faith, takes a couple of steps in faith, sees the waves, he doubts, and then he sinks. And nobody wants to be one of those people who doubts and sinks, right? Everybody wants to have faith. So you're not going to go around saying, why do you abandon me? That's not the faithful word to say. But the thing about that whole story with Peter is maybe not so much that we're supposed to go out and manufacture some more faith. It's not just a matter of saying, hey, you know, hunker down, tough up, tough up, buttercup, you know, get a little bit more faith. But maybe the idea is that, you know, Peter, here is the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on, right? 
And so in this moment, he's kind of taken all of our places, right? And he steps out. And what do we learn? He doesn't have enough faith. The idea is not so much that we got to work harder to get our faith, but what we desperately need is for Jesus to reach out and pull us up, right? And that's the moral that we're just so desperately in need. If I could put it a different way, but I put it in this context, that some of you may remember Mother Teresa. She was a, a Catholic nun who lived in the slums in India and worked with the poorest of the poor there. Uh, she'd passed away in 1997. She had won a, a Nobel Peace Prize during her life. But about 10 years later, 2007, they gathered a lot of her writings together and published them in a book. And what they found is, from her letters, is that except for one short period, um, Mother Teresa had been affected with a deep sense of God's absence for the last half century of her life. Now, her say, it turns out that if you look, her experience isn't unique. If you look at Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, John Wesley, leader of the revival in the Church of England and the founder of the Methodists, and John Calvin, they all describe similar periods of their life. And if you don't know who John Calvin is, go ask Jonathan. <laughs> they all describe similar periods of their life. Uh, so St. John of the Cross, he's a Spanish mystic, he described it as the dark night of the soul. It's this period when God feels distant, when there's this time of feeling abandoned, this time when God feels far away that he uses to refine us. And so what all these parents of the faith testify is that maybe this feeling of abandonment is just part of the Christian life. Um, maybe you felt it before. Maybe you're feeling it now. Maybe you're there. Maybe the holidays aren't your thing, and it's a lot of people who end up blue around Christmas. But because we're starting into Advent, this is time when we prepare for Jesus' arrival, when we prefer for Emmanuel, where we prepare for God with us, we can remember that Psalm 22 was a psalm that was sung by the congregation before Jesus came. It was a regular part of the Hebrew readings. Every year they would read this psalm, my God, why have you abandoned us? And as Jesus is on the cross, this is the psalm that Jesus sings, my God, why have you abandoned us? And so when we come to the cross, we don't necessarily understand the depths of Jesus' suffering. We don't understand fully what's going on and what he's doing for us and what that cost him. But what we do understand is that Jesus gets us, that he knows our suffering, that he's lived the same lives that we lived. He knows that separation. What Psalm 22 teaches us is that even in the midst of these doubts, that our faith can still exist together with that, that there's room in our spiritual life for the times when the days are hard, the moments when we're alone, the times when we're desperate. And in fact, God is not really surprised by this. He's felt it himself. He is God with us. In Psalm 22, we learn that we may feel that God has abandoned us, but in Jesus, we see that we're not forgotten. We see in Jesus, we see that God has made himself known and that he's intertwined our life with our, his life with ours. And so when we come to those dark and lonely moments, those times when we feel we're, we're far away from God, when we feel that we're separated, when we feel that we need to cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are words that Jesus cries with. So because of this, and because Jesus, we are never alone when we say these things. In Jesus, we see that we're not abandoned. In Hebrews, the author writes it like this. We do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, 
when I talked about the psalm earlier, there wasn't any clean transition. This is how I got from the first half of the psalm to the second half of the psalm. And right now, I'm not actually writing the psalm, so I'm giving a sermon. So I kind of feel like I have to give you something in that, something, some 10-step some, some program. Well, it's, it's not 10 steps. It's a much shorter sermon than that. But what I would say, if I was going to come out of this with one practical application, is that we should really be people who pray the psalms. And I don't mean that just in the sense that we sing these happy songs and because things are so great, because God has been so good with us. I mean, we really need to pray the psalms, that we can call out with the psalms and say, why, God, why have you abandoned me? Because I think what we learn when we see something like Psalm 22 is that God is not afraid of these big emotions. You know, I think many of us are parents, and we probably have had that experience where, you know, the kids come up and kick you, they say all kinds of crazy stuff to you, and yet, you know, you never kick them out of the house over that thing, right? They're still there the next day. God's no different. God can handle all those fears and the doubt and all that strong emotion from us. And we see that, in fact, he encourages us to express that kind of thing to him. There's no point in polishing, polishing your life up. Psalm 22 comes in as about as raw as you can get, right? And it's not the only one. The other thing is that Psalm, I think the Psalms teach us how to pray. Now, Psalm 22 starts with this despair. It starts with this doubt, and it starts in this very dark place, but it doesn't end there. It also, in that sense, it teaches us that we're not alone, right? You see the psalmist these, feeling these same kind of things that may resonate with you at different times. Now, sometimes, you know, you're having good times, and that, res that's, that, hits, that scratches one edge, right? But sometimes it starts in that dark place. But as we read Psalm 22, it doesn't just stay in that dark place. You see the psalmist wrestling with his, his thoughts. He admits to this darkness. He admits to the hardship. He admits to all the bad things that are going on. But then he always puts that in light of who God is. And he always reflects the fact, and then he reflects the fact that in spite of all of this darkness and all of this stuff that seems to have gone wrong, that God is still enthroned as the Holy One. And it gives us this great picture that even though there is this badness, this darkness, this thing that is just broken, that Jesus is still in charge and Jesus understands. And Jesus is with us in the midst of that. So there's a real strong way that I think we see the gospel in the midst of this. You know, we start with the separation in the beginning of the psalm, this abandonment. And yet, as we go through, we see we know in Jesus the solution. We know that he was despised. We know that he was scorned. We know that he paid the full price, that he handled that separation reality so that we wouldn't have to, that we would always have Jesus walking with us through these things. And we also know that it doesn't end with those low points, that that's not the whole story. They're real. It happens. It's common to the Christian experience. But it's not the end of the story. In that sense, when we read these psalms, they point us back to Jesus. They also allow us to borrow faith as we pray these things. We serve God who is God for God with us. But he's also God forsaken. So that when we feel forsaken, we are not. When we feel alone, we are not. Jesus is there. He walks through us in the midst of all those things. With that, let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful that um, you are, have walked in our shoes. We are grateful that you know the depths of our sorrow, that you know all of the things that we faced, and none of these are a surprise to you, and that you are God who is acquainted with our grief. We thank you, and we pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds to the things that you would have us know, and open the way this, that you would refine us through all of these difficulties, that we would not merely, merely uh, doubt, but that we reach out to 